please turn to page 272 in your Bibles. And it's chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. So that's page 272, chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and the people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh. I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar 
to burn incense and to wear an effort in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, those who honour me, I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to, to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, let me pray as we start. Uh, Father God, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, please, would you kindly speak to us uh, this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please keep your Bibles open in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll be uh, looking at lots of what we've just read together. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's what um, my dad used to say. That was his phrase. Um, and he still does, actually. Uh, it'd always be his reaction um, to something happening, something unexpectedly happening. So some mishap would happen, and he would say, oh, boy. Some frustrating news would happen, and he would say, oh, boy. Something crazy on the news, and he would say, oh, boy. That was his way of letting out uh, a feeling of shock you know, this wasn't part of the plan, that, that sort of feeling. For some reason, when I read this passage, I heard his reaction. Think about it. In today's reading, we've just learned about people in power selfishly misusing their power for their own gain at the expense of others. Oh, boy. 
I don't know how you felt when we were reading that passage, but you might have almost found the words tumbling out of your mouth, saying, how corrupt. Corruption is all around us, isn't it? Uh, For example, I came across this article, have a look on the screens, um, saying calls for investigations as supermarkets accused of using price tick on, uh, price trick, sorry, on loyalty offers. The trick here was that shops would uh, supposedly give discounts on their products for members of the shop. Um, And so if you remember, you're going around, you're sort of getting all these discounts thinking, look at how much I've saved, when in actual fact, you're paying the same price and they've just bumped up the non-member price. How cheeky. This is just a small example, because the real sadness of corruption is seen when our livelihoods, our families, our well-being are utterly ruined when others lie, steal, or cheat. In some way, when we look at this passage today, I do think that is what we're seeing. But we mustn't forget the big picture, the overarching message of 1 Samuel, uh, which doesn't focus on the agenda of Hophni and Phinehas, those meddling priests, or Hoph and Finn, as I like to call them, but on God's agenda. To remind us, let's recap the story so far. If you were here in the the first couple of uh, sermons in this series so far, you remember we've uh, learned that the book of Samuel is about God's kingdom agenda and God's worship agenda. Those are the two big things. And in our part of the story today, we're thinking about God's worship agenda. That's to say, how uh, how God's people worship him is very important to him. So in in chapter 1 in verse 3, we got to see where this setting, uh, the the story is set. It's in Shiloh, where God's faithful people like Elkanah and his family would come and make sacrifices to God. And as we uh, think about this story, I want you to have in mind that actually that whole process of making sacrifices had some clear, strict rules and restrictions of how it should be done. And we'll see that as we go in this story. We also met Hannah a woman who faithfully comes to worship and also prays for a son who God graciously provides and who Hannah gratefully gives back to God. As we got into chapter two, um, we hear Hannah's prayers. We've already looked at this uh, afternoon uh, where she paints us this picture of, of who God is and what his character is like. Have a quick look with me in verse two uh, of chapter two. Um, He's a holy God. There is none like him. In verse 4, he humbles and he exalts. Verse 6, he brings death and he makes alive. Which brings us to our passage today. And this is just a continuation of the story because actually what we're going to see, sorry, what Hannah has shown us so far uh, of God's character is about to play out in front of us we have here a story and a lesson of a God who sees corruption and a God who responds to it. A God who sees corruption and a God who responds to it. Well, let's see how that plays out. So firstly, God sees the corruption. So have a look at verse 12. We have Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, um, who were mentioned earlier in chapter one as well. These are young men, 
priests and described as scoundrels. Worse than that, they had no regard for the Lord. I don't know if you're the sort of visual person when we're reading this passage, trying to imagine what happens in the next few verses, but try and picture the scene. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of the worshipping Israelite. Uh, it, you, it's, it's, the year, it's the time for the yearly sacrifice. You've brought your animal to sacrifice. You've done everything by the book, literally. So now it's time to give some of that to the priest, some of the meat that you, um, you have sacrificed. So all normal so far. You're heading to boil the meat and you joke in your head. You're thinking, the priest with his three-pronged fork it always looks a bit threatening, doesn't he? And as you're doing that, you hear a question that comes to you. Verse 15. Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. So you look at him a bit puzzled. You scratch your head and you think, oh, I'm not sure that's the right order. I'm not sure that's how things are supposed to work. You sort of go over Leviticus in your head saying, oh, I wonder if he's just forgotten the order. Let me tell him. So in verse 16, you say, let the fat be burned off first. Then then take whatever you want. Then the servant's face drops. He looks at you sternly and in a threatening way says, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. At this moment, I suspect your head is spinning. What's just happened? I thought I had this right. Maybe I got it wrong. He's a man of God. He must know. He can't be wrong. What does God think about me now? But did I get that wrong? You chat to your friends afterwards who who seem to be having similar experiences and you think, something is not right here. Later on, you're leaving and you see those same priests and servants chatting up the women who were serving and you think, should they be doing that? Something is not right. Right. I wonder what you would make of that situation. The truth is, it was just wrong. If we do look back at Leviticus and Numbers, Phineas and Hophni would have known that certain parts of the animal were an offering to the Lord and that in their priestly office, they were going to get some of that anyway. They were provided for. And yet it seems as though they weren't happy with that. So they intimidate faithful worshippers into getting not just what they were entitled to, but more and more. But have a look at verse 17 with me. We get to learn straight away that this doesn't get missed by God. He sees it. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. So the question comes, well, how does God respond? Well, I think God responds in two ways. He responds with judgment and with grace. Let's think about the first one first. Um, God responds to the corruption with judgment. So back in verse 17, God doesn't leave uh, sin unjudged or unpunished. In verse 17, he actually calls their corruption sin. And that this sin was very great. And as we jump forward in the story, we look at verse 25, the judgment for their sin and refusal to repent is death. There are consequences to sin, to taking God-given responsibilities and misusing them. 
we see more of God's judgment as we go from verse 27 onwards. I don't know what you thought about those, uh, th- those verses particularly, but I, tend to find, I-, I found when I was reading them that they're, they're very weighty, aren't they? They're very emotional. So from verse 27, uh, let, me, let me put it like this. Uh, cast your mind back to being told off by a parent. In my, in my mind, there's two versions of that. Um, there's the straightforward anger, um, and then there's the rather, I think, painful disappointment version of being told off. Uh, if you're anything like me, the second one of those hit really hard. My angry parents uh, was one thing, but my disappointed parents, whew. I don't know what it was, but something about that really just gripped me, really got to me as to why they were so disappointed. Let's, let's read those verses again and see if you can see that. So verse 27, we're starting part way through. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? an offering that I prescribed in my dwelling. Why, why do you honor your sons more than me? To God, this role is an important one. To be able to approach God on behalf of his people, to be the mediator, to allow God's people to worship him, Eli's family were specially chosen to be his priest, to go to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod. That was the the sort of garment given particularly for the priest. And to be in his presence. They had the chance to be in God's presence. What a privilege. And they were provided for, as if that wasn't enough already. They were provided for, given food to eat. They were blessed and they had plenty. So, why do you scorn my sacrifice? How disappointing to take advantage of people in such a privileged role for your own gain? And what's the consequence? Well, let's jump all the way to verse 36. I think it shows us something really interesting. Verse 36, then everyone left in your family will uh, will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. So where they had been elevated to this privileged role, they would now be brought down from verse 29, having the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel, to verse 36, begging for food. Like I said, this is one whole chapter, so actually have a look at verse five and what it says there. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. When we hear this story, I think we should shudder at the actions of Phineas and Hophni. But the deeper tragedy is more than just the misuse of power. I think we're meant to see here with these characters of Phineas and Hophni that actually, because of how they're acting, God's people don't have a faithful priest. Worship is somewhat broken for his people. This is a big issue. 
We could stop here um, and reflect on this idea of misuse of power. You know, say something like, ah, so those of you who are in positions of power, particularly in church, don't misuse it. Actually, I, I, I do think what this, that's what's happening in this passage. That is one of the lessons here. Most of us are aware, aren't we, of the, the, how much hurt can be caused by people in power, particularly in church. Some of us are all too aware of how deeply that can wound. We can also be aware of how misleading it can be when people who are teaching the Bible might be tempted to teach the Bible on their own terms. You know, go with what society is saying when God's Word is actually calling us to do something else entirely. What a tragedy. To all those things, I say, please see God's response here uh, in this passage today. Please see God's response to, uh, how, uh, to uh, the sin of those who may have hurt or misled you. He sees corruption. He sees their sin. He's not blind to the hurt of his people. Remember how he, he hears Hannah's prayers of anguish, particularly. And ultimately, actually, let's remember that he is the judge of those wrongdoings. But with this passage, I think the question still remains to say, well, how will God's people worship? when those with such a beautiful, privileged responsibility don't know him, don't know God, and won't even let his people worship without taking advantage of them. Well, we know that God is responding with judgment, but we also see that God responds with grace. Have a look at verse 35 with me. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind i will firmly establish his priestly house and he will and they will minister before my anointed one always here is the grace here is the hope god will provide the people don't have faithful priests they need a faithful priest the the um Uh, worshipping him is so important. So God says, I will provide one. I will provide you with a representative that will do what is in my heart and mind. And we know God is a God who makes promises and fulfills them. So have a look with me now um, how the way this passage is uh, is laid out. Because you'll probably have noticed by now that there's one part of this story that I've intentionally not quite got to yet, a recurring storyline, the one referring to Samuel. So, verse 18, we have a, uh, a boy ministering before the Lord, wearing an effort, that priestly garment. In verse 21, we see, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Actually, if we jump all the way to chapter 3, verse 1, it's still there. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord and Eli, under Eli. Spoiler alert, Samuel is God's provision for his people at this time. Here we have intertwined into the story of corruption and failure, God laying down foundations of hope. 
a priest better than the one currently in place, whose life was already devoted to God before he was born. Samuel, who in his early years we see here, always before the Lord. The people may not know it yet under the selfish hand of Phineas and Hophni, but God is quietly growing Samuel to serve his people. God says, your answer to broken worship is the person I provide for you. What a wonderful God he is. There's one description of Samuel that I think is quite interesting. Let's have a look at verse 26 with me. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and people. Why do we get that detail? Well, come with me, if you will, thousands of years later to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where we hear about another boy in another temple at the time of the Passover, and we read this, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I think the way those two verses are phrased is meant to get our ears pricked up and listen. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Hold that thought for a minute and come back to 1 Samuel with me, back to uh, verse 25 uh, in chapter 2, where we're sort of back into the middle of the story. Eli's telling off his sons, and he asks them quite an intriguing question. He says, if one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Eli's saying to his sons, you've sinned against God. What is your hope if you sinned against God? Seems rhetorical, um, but actually if you read between the lines, I think there's a big question there, a a big issue there. What is our hope in the face of sin? Um, I'm going to get another verse on the screens for us now from Hebrews chapter 7. This is a chapter in Hebrews talking about priests, talking about Jesus, and it says what I think very helpfully brings a lot of what we're talking about this afternoon together. So have a look at this as I read it. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. All this to say, in today's passage, God graciously provides his people with a faithful priest as he prepares Samuel. But as we look at how he provides Samuel, see the picture of how he graciously gives us Jesus. A permanent faithful priest able to intercede and save his people. There's a lot in this passage that we could think about, but I'd like to draw it to a close and give us a couple of things to think about. What, is it, what does all of this mean for us? A couple of things that I think it means for us. First is to take God-given responsibilities seriously. 
Um, I don't know if you've seen, um, don't have one with me at the moment, but the, um, I think it's the term cards um, that we have um, has a list of the staff team here at church. Um, as you go to the bottom of the list, it just says, I think it says something like, all the church family. I remember reading that and being like, oh. I think there's a challenge here for us. When we read a passage like this, I think it can be tempting to claim that just because I'm not employed by church, I don't work in that sort of world, that actually this doesn't apply to me. We have the privilege of being God's children and we have the God-given responsibility to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. So actually, maybe we ought to ask ourselves the question. Uh, sorry, uh, maybe we ought to ask God to humble our hearts and ask ourselves the question, where might I choose to put myself first or gain more and more for myself? How does that impact my brothers and sisters in Christ? We ought to take God-given responsibilities seriously. And the second is to, take, uh, to turn to Jesus, God's perfect priest. The perfect priest who God graciously provides so his people can worship. I guess the question here is, where do you put your trust when earthly church crumbles? It feels shattering, doesn't it, when scandals come out about church, about Christians even, um, who have been hurtful. And it is hard. And it is painful. And it's right that we mourn, feel that sadness and hurt, and cry out to our God, who hears. But we also ought to examine our hearts. Ask ourselves the question, how much do I put my trust in other people being faithful, hoping that they don't fail me, rather than putting my hope on Jesus, God's faithful priest who he's provided? How wonderful it is that we have a God like this. How wonderful it is that he would gift us with his son, a perfect priest who we can trust. As we ponder those things, I'll ask the uh, band to, to come up and we will uh, sing our next song. Um, oh God of justice, truth and might. Let me pray before we do. Father God, thank you for um, this passage, for your nature how you are a God who judges, but you are a God who responds with grace as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen.